If you have a Bible, let me invite you to join me in Luke chapter number 6. Luke chapter number 6. Uh, if you've been coming with us week after week, you know that we've been working our way through Deuteronomy, and I was, all my study this, this week up until um, Thursday was on Deuteronomy, and, and on Thursday I got in my truck and I felt very prompted to ask the Holy Spirit, am I headed the right way this week? Because there was just something in my spirit that just didn't seem like this was the message that the Lord wanted to share. And immediately he placed a passage of scripture on my mind. And to be honest, I hesitated. You know how it is. Sometimes you pray and you, you kind of wonder, is this the Lord speaking to me or is this me convincing myself of something? And I hesitated and then I realized this is his church, not mine. I better preach his message, not mine. And uh, so we're going to be today in the Gospel of Luke. I told Jamie in the car uh, the yesterday or the yesterday or Friday when we, I said, I think this is actually the first message I'm preaching since coming to Plymouth other than Christmas that, that starts in the New Testament. Like every one of, every one of the messages has, has been in the Old and uh, just trying to bring life from the, to that old, new, old Testament through, through the picture and the filter of the New. But today we're, we're going to just stick right here in the Gospel of Luke. Do you know anybody who excels at finding fault in others and also excels in not seeing their own? And there's some people, I'm sure we all know them, that will complain about the weather no matter what. It's either uh, too hot or too cold, too wet or too dry, uh, too bright or too cloudy. There's people who, every time they speak, it's about the criticism of a job, a boss, a spouse, politics. And, you know, people like that, you know what really bothers them? People who complain too much. <laughs> you know, one reason, I heard, a, heard this quote years ago, never forgot it. But pride is the only disease that bothers everyone except the person that has it. It's kind of like having something on your face, and you do not know what's there, but everyone else that is looking at you is kind of like, you know, hey, they're giving you the face, like you got, right, like, right, if you just, and then finally, if like, in, in my case, it doesn't matter how many times my wife would do that, she finally has to get a napkin and wipe, wipe it off me, but uh, sometimes we just have no idea of our pride. We can't see it. I've been preaching um, for over 25 years. When I first started preaching, I, I would promise you that the majority of the messages that I shared came from going to the Bible, seeing what people did wrong, telling the congregation what people did wrong in the Bible and how we shouldn't do the same thing. That's the majority of, I think, what I used to share. And I don't know exactly when it was, but I know it was the work of the Lord. But the more that I read the failures of the Bible the more that I begin to see myself. Whether it's Adam and his temptation that I used to think, how could you give up a garden for that? And then I look at my own life and think of sometimes how easily I could have thrown away perfection by chasing just one temptation. You look at, you look at Abraham, who walked with God and, and received this promise and I will give you a child and yet he could not wait on God's timing he had to go out and do it himself and I like come on Abraham 
And it's actually like, it's actually, come on, Brian. I mean, we know what God said. He's going to do what he said. We've got to trust. And I still, I still read my Bible. I still see the failures. But more and more, the failures are making the portrait of a mirror that just points right back to me. Today, we're going to encounter one of those groups in Scripture that I, I easily see myself in regularly. They're called the Pharisees. A group of religious people who really they tried to do everything right. And, and they were so good at pointing out the faults in others and missing their own. And Jesus has an encounter with these Pharisees in Luke chapter number 6. And we're going to read from verses 6 through 11 this morning on this encounter. Luke chapter 6 beginning in verse number 6. The word says, and on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Verse 10. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so in this little encounter, we have, we have three subjects. We have the Pharisees, we have Jesus, and we have this man whose hand was healed. And my prayer is by the end of the message today, you, you, you see yourself in this passage and that you are willing to honestly confront what you see. So let's begin first with the, the Pharisees. They were the, the law keepers. And these were the, the religious elite of the day. They were the ones who again, pointed out the faults in others, including the very Son of God. They, they, they followed Jesus, and when he and his disciples walked through a, a field of wheat and plucked it and ate it on the Sabbath, they called him out for that. When Jesus and his disciples sat down to eat without washing their hands, they called them out for, for that. When Jesus sat down to eat with sinners, man, that was a problem. His Pharisees were, well, why does your rabbi sit down and eat with sinners? But you notice something interesting. If we go back to that passage, those first two verses, we, we, we find some really good characteristics of the Pharisees. I mean, did you notice where they were? They were, they were in the synagogue. right? The synagogue were, were the, like, the local houses of, of worship where the Jews would, would come. The Torah would be read and it would be explained and prayer would be offered. It was... It was the place where spiritual people hung out and unspiritual people avoided. Huh, wait, wait. A place where the word of God is taught, where prayer is offered, where spiritual people are and where unspiritual people avoid. Does that sound like anything we have today? Hey, <laughs> no, yeah, no, thank you, yeah. That sounds an awful lot like church. Which means if we want to know where the Pharisees of today's world are, 
Well, guess where they'd be on a Sunday morning? They'd be in their place. Where the word of God is taught. Where prayers are offered. But notice what else about these Pharisees. It says that they were watching Jesus. That means their eyes were in the right place with an expectancy. They were watching Jesus to see if he would use his power to heal. So they were in the synagogue watching the Son of God, saying, are are you going to do a great work today? Man, so you got people in the local house of worship where the word of God is taught, where prayers are offered, where religious people are, where unspiritual people avoid, and and they're waiting for God to do something great. Man, I just think like that is perfectly describing Plymouth Community Church and most of the other churches around the world today. It's like, so what could be so bad about these guys called the Pharisees? Now, the issue wasn't where they were, and it wasn't what they were doing. It was, it was a why. See, they had a, a heart problem. If you notice behind me in verse number six, Jesus went to the synagogue to teach the law, but the very next verse is the Pharisees were in the synagogue waiting to accuse Jesus. They were watching and waiting, but they were watching and waiting so that they would have a reason to condemn him. Which means, like, you got to understand what's going on here. You have the very word of God, Jesus, the incarnation, the word made flesh. The word of God was teaching the words of God in the house of God to the people of God, and yet those who appeared closest to God weren't interested in what was being shared at all. Like apparently to the Pharisees, the least important thing taking place was that the word was sharing the word, and the most important thing was how are we going to bring this guy down? They might have been watching Jesus, but they were not listening to him. And before we begin to shake our heads in disbelief and start asking questions like, how can these guys? Can I ask you, have you ever read a book of the Bible or a chapter of the Bible and just thought, I just spent five minutes reading this chapter. I have no idea what it said. I have many, many times. Have you ever attended church? And on the way home, somebody asks you a question about the sermon, and all of a sudden you're like, "Ah, I just spent 30 minutes, and for Pastor Brian, 40 minutes. Uh, I just spent 30 minutes in church listening to somebody. I don't even remember what was said. Has, Has anything incredible taken place right in front of you, but you were so distracted that you completely missed it? I often tell Uh, couples that I get to do premarital counseling with, that on our fifth anniversary, Jamie and I pulled out the uh, good old VHS tape. That's how it tells you how old we are. The VHS tape of the recording of our wedding, and we plopped it in the VCR, um, which I guess we can't do that anymore, can we? We, But it was our fifth anniversary, and we decided to watch our wedding. And I sat there, and I thought, I don't remember that. 
I don't, I don't remember that. And when our pastor said some, re, he said some really, really inspiring words. And I'm like, I don't remember this at all. And I got to thinking back to the day of our wedding. I'm a perfectionist. I am. I want things to be done absolutely right. And on the day of our wedding, the photographer showed up 45 minutes late. That really bothered me. And, and all the guys were supposed to, all the groomsmen and ushers were supposed to be at a certain place, you know, at a certain time. And, and my very best friend, all the way through high school, my very best friend, it was like an hour past that time and he still wasn't there. And I was starting to get upset. Like, this is the day before cell phones and texting. I don't know where he is. I remember, I remember going to meet the pastor just before we walked out for the wedding and I turned to one of my friends and I said some very unkind words about my very best friend just because he was late to my wedding. But I think the thing that would sum it up the best is a picture, I should have brought, I didn't even think about that, is this picture that after the wedding, we all, you know, you take all these family pictures, but we had, we had the wedding, then we went to the reception, then we came back and took some family pictures. And so it's, once these pictures are done, Jamie and I are finally going to be able to head up to downtown Chicago to our hotel. And, and, and so like all these pictures are being taken. And then there's this one of my entire family. Now you got to know my family, all my family. My, I have five brothers and sisters and my brothers, I have three brothers. They're, they are some of the most sarcastic guys that you know, always in fun and in love. But man, sometimes it just rolls. And the photographer was standing down here. The, the family was all up here. And, and the, the photographer would say, take, take a step to your left. Well, then my brothers would like, oh, you mean this left? Or, or should I go this left? And they were just going back and forth. And it was just like, it was driving me insane. I just want the pictures to be done. And there's one shot. Of course, this is before digital cameras. So you don't know what the shot looks like until it's already developed. But there's this one shot where everybody in the picture is looking at the photographer and smiling. And I am standing next to my beautiful wife on the day of our matrimony as surrounded by the people in the world who love me most. And this is what I look like. Ah. <sighs> And I know exactly what I said. I was saying to my brothers, would you just shut up already so we could take the picture? I remember saying those words, and she caught me in that moment. I look back, and I, those, are, those are my memories from my wedding. Those are the things I do remember from my wedding, and I don't remember the beautiful, inspiring words that the man who married us shared. Focused on something so little that you miss something so colossal. You know, we can sit down with the eternal word of God in front of us. The word that was written by the creator of the heavens and the earth, by the redeemer who came and gave his life on a cross so that we could have the forgiveness of sins, so that we could have an eternal relationship with the Father. We could spend time with that word open in front of us and not have a clue what it says because our phone is dinging that we have, spirit, that we have social media notifications going on. It's just amazing how we often miss what's most important that's right in front of us because we are, are, are so distracted by the little things 
in life. I remember one of the most helpful pieces of advice I was ever given as a teenager, always read the Bible with a pen. I remember being told that, always read the Bible with a pen. It gives you a chance to underline what's important, write something, yourself a question if you have a question. But more importantly, by the time you're done reading, look back at what you just read. And if there's nothing underlined or marked, you may just not have been paying attention to what you were reading. Because God wants to speak to us. The question is, are we listening? You know, but often, we can often be in the right place, doing the right thing, and missing it all. Looking good on the outside, while inside we're either empty or we're just full of corruption. And I'll tell you, one of the best evidences is that, that that's your condition is how critical of a spirit you have towards others. It may not be the case every time, but I do know this in my own life. When I start to become overly critical of others, I'm actually masking my own brokenness. I'm trying to deflect it to other people so that you don't see it in me. And, and I just, man, I would just love to caution you. If you have a critical spirit, please know that a critical spirit is a spirit that is in critical condition. If all we do is point to what others are doing wrong, we are headed down a path of destruction. I remember uh, reading a, a, an article that, that a group of parents and teachers were, were asked, keep track of how you correct people. Do you correct with positive or negative comments? And they said that two-thirds of the corrections came with words of criticism. And in this study, it, was also, it, was, it also shared that it takes four positive statements to match the impact of one negative statement. Think about that, moms and dads. It takes four positive statements to make the same impact in the lives of our children as one negative statement. We need correction. Correction has to be had. But it doesn't always have to come accompanied with words of criticism. But that's who these men were, these Pharisees. Let's look at the second subject. Jesus, the mind reader. Remember, we saw that Jesus went into the synagogue to teach, but the Pharisees, they weren't there to learn, they were to accuse. But here's the thing, Jesus knew that because it tells us in verse number eight, he knew their thoughts. And because he knew that he was there to teach and they weren't there to learn, he stopped teaching. Because a teacher who is not being heard is a very ineffective teacher. And Jesus knew his words would have no effect until he addressed the, the, the condition of their heart. I, I've, I've loved, I love coaching and I, I love working with teenagers and I've done that for so many years. But here's what I know about teenagers. You could be in the same room as, you could be feet away from them, speaking directly to them, and their hearts and minds are a world away. Just because you're together, and just because you're speaking, doesn't mean they're actually listening to you. When I was in Virginia, I got to join the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I started out with the football team. And here's one thing that I noticed about the football team. The coach would, would, would gather the guys, and there's this big huddle of 60, 70 guys, and he'd start talking, and I, here's what I noticed. The guys in the back two rows of the big huddle, they'd always be talking to themselves, and they wouldn't be listening to the coach. 
It was the guys who were up close to the coach, and they're, they're kneeling down, and they're looking at him. And so I was watching this, and, I, and I, got to, I got to go every Thursday to practice, and I got to go to all the games and speak to the guys in the locker room and stuff. And, and I started, started observing this, and so like after a couple of times of them getting to know me, I, I finally said, fellas, let me, let, me let me just tell you something. I think it does a great disservice to you, to your team, and especially to your coach when he's trying to talk to you, and you won't even listen to him. And so the next time his coach started to talk and their guys weren't listening, I just, hey, 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 I'm not on the football team. I'm just a dude, right? I'm just showing up. And I'm like, hey, 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 listen to coach. Because it doesn't do us any good to just talk if nobody's going to listen. Jesus didn't go into the synagogue to talk. He went to teach. And in order to teach, people have to listen, which means if you have this feeling that God is not speaking to you, you might want to consider, am I listening for him? Now, what does it say about God? That he doesn't come in thunder. He doesn't come in earthquakes. He doesn't come through whirling tornadoes. It's a still, small voice that you will not hear if you are not listening for him. Hey, moms and dads and even grandmas and grandpas, because so many of you have such influential roles in your, in the, your kids' and grandkids' lives, don't, don't tell your kids something one time and then expect them to remember that. You have got to teach them repetitively the culture of your family. Say it so much that your kids say, I know, I know, I know. Good. When they're finally saying that, it's gotten into their heart. So often we say something one, one time and then walk away and they say, well, I told them. No, no, that's not your job to tell them. Your job is to teach them over and over and over. But you also then need to be very careful with the words that you use because you never know when they actually might be listening. You could tell your children, you be respectful to authority, but they might be listening when you're criticizing your boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 our family, church is important to our family. Well, unless we have something else going on. They're, list, they're listening. We're teaching. Jesus knows these guys aren't there for the truths that he's come to teach. So he turns to the truths that they need. In verse number nine, Jesus asks them this question. He said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy? And I, I think most of you might be familiar with the Sabbath and we might have condensed the Sabbath and said, well, that's a day where you don't do any work. You're just trying to like prepare for another week of work. But actually the Sabbath is so much more than that. It goes back to the, that Exodus series that we talked about, right? The covenant between Israel and between Yahweh and Israel. The Sabbath was all about trust and rest. Because they lived in a culture where they would work seven days a week. Because they always needed to eat. They always needed to be working and caring for themselves. And Yahweh comes to his people and says, here's what we're going to do. You're going to show the rest of the world that you can accomplish more in six days than they can accomplish in seven. 
You're going to trust me to go to work for you on a day where you're just going to rest in me. That's what the Sabbath was all about. But through the years, the religious leaders, they, why they added so many layers of laws to the Sabbath. For example, it makes sense that on the Sabbath, you don't go plow a field. That would make sense, right? Because that means you're trying, to, you're trying to get an advancement in your own work. Well, what happens when you plow a field? Well, you stir up dust. And, you know, of course, they lived in a, in a place where there were dirt floors and everything. And, you know, if you ever pulled a chair across the dirt floor, you know what it would do? It would stir up dust. And so there they wrote onto the rules of the Sabbath that you cannot move a chair on the Sabbath because moving a chair on the Sabbath stirs up dust. Stirring up dust is equated to plowing, no moving a chair. Well, what? Is that, is that really what God wanted? But see, there were just so many layers. And what had happened is the Sabbath, instead of becoming a day of rest in God and what he has done for us, the Sabbath became a day of burdens. Like, what can I not do or else God's going to be mad at me? Like, No. And we're, we're not here to, to be afraid of God. We're here to celebrate what he has done for us and that we can rest in him and I know, like when you think about moving the chair uh, being being a rule on the Sabbath, it just seems so stupid, right? But before we shake our heads at them, like we have to admit that the church faces the same struggles today, right? The gathering of of God's people each week is supposed to be a time where we joyfully celebrate and we passionately worship the God who has redeemed us in ways we could never redeem us and he has placed us in the midst of brothers and sisters that we could never choose for ourselves. He gave us as gifts to one another. That's how Sunday should be, but how many people look at Sunday as a burden? I don't really want to go to church today. I've got so much else going on. But if I don't, I guess God won't bless me. I don't, I don't think the idea of gathering on a Sunday is that if you don't go, God's not going to bless you. I think it's all about it is the blessing. I don't want to be here. I've got more important stuff to do. I'd rather be somewhere else. I wish I could be doing something else. I, I wish today wasn't my day to serve. Can, can I just encourage you? When serving the Lord is more of a burden than a blessing, you might want to reflect on who you're actually serving. Like, are you living for yourself and this just gets in the way? Or are we truly living for the glory of God and we have an opportunity to serve the brothers and sisters of our church? What a joy. What a blessing to be able to come here and say, I am glad I get to serve you. I mean, we do spend all week, right, with people who use our Savior's name as a curse word. And we get to gather in this room and we get to glorify and exalt the name above all names. Like that's a good thing, right? But often we look for reasons and excuses not to come. But we don't just celebrate what God's doing in here. We get to celebrate what God's doing out there. I mean, like, it's so cool. Two weeks ago, a family in Plymouth, they, they reached out to our church to say that they needed some, they had some financial needs. Guess the two ladies in our church went shopping bought groceries, and dropped it off at that family's house and prayed with them. Yes, that's, we're, hit, we're, we're reaching into the community. 
And there's a couple in our church that, that needed some help with some renovations. There were men in our church that spent two full days laying floor for this couple. Like that's what it's about. And Miss Brenda, she goes and has surgery and the ladies gather around. They're dropping off food uh, for Miss Brenda. I just think that's so cool, right? This past weekend, a family, again, a homeless family in our community reached out and said, hey, we have nowhere to stay. Could we get help? One of the men of our church drove to the hotel, paid for them to stay in a hotel, and another man from our church reached out and prayed with them. Like, that's what it's all about. That's what we get to do. That's what we celebrate. We come together not to say we're better than them. It's we come here to celebrate what Jesus has done in our life so we can live it out in the lives of others who may not know him. Right? But man, don't you, don't you think most churches, in most churches, it's like you come, you sit, you wait for it to end so you can go? What if, what if, instead of coming to church to get a blessing, what if we came to church to be a blessing? Oh, okay. Pastor, you're really, you're flipping the script on that. I'm supposed to come to church to get a blessing. Well, let's think about Jesus. Why did he come to this earth? Did he come to this earth to get blessed? No, he came to be a blessing. He came to us so that we could be blessed. I mean, think about what would happen if this church had 100 people walking around, standing in that lobby, standing in this sanctuary, and their entire purpose was saying, hey, I'm going to go to church today. I'm going to smile. I'm going to encourage. I'm going I'm to talk, and I'm going to pray with people in the church. And when someone walks in that back door and they don't know anybody, they're greeted by person after person after person after person say, we're so glad you're here. We're thrilled that you're here. Thank you so much for coming. How can I be in prayer for you this week? What can we do to be a, a, a group of people that love Jesus? How can we serve you? Like, I mean, like, wouldn't that blow your mind? Okay, wait, wait, wait. why would it blow our mind? Isn't that what church is all about? Are we a family of God? Why don't we act like it then? Why do we sit so, so secluded from people we don't know and, and when people that we don't know walk past us, we don't even look at them because we really hope that they don't expect us to speak to them. Listen, I don't care if you don't know anybody else in here. You're a part of this family. And I want you to feel that way. And we church, hey, hey, we have to make them feel that way. We, we, we need to start reaching out instead of waiting for people to fit in. You're not smiling at me. You got to smile at me. Come on. <laughs> we got to be a church that loves on people. No one, no one should ever sit alone. No one. And some people will choose to do that. I get that. But no one should ever be left to sit alone. So Jesus, he walks in to teach, knows the hearts of the Pharisees, and he addresses what they really needed. But he's not quite done. There's one more person. He calls the man with the withered hand into the middle of the synagogue, and all eyes are on the man. We'll call him the meek believer. And Jesus says to this man in verse number 10, 
Stretch out your hand. Okay. You understand he's now faced with a dilemma. He's standing in the middle of a crowd. Everyone is looking at him, and Jesus has just placed the spotlight directly on him and says, stretch out your hand. But do you notice what Jesus doesn't tell him? Which hand to stretch out? So what does this man do? He has one hand, it's his right hand, that we know it's in need of healing. And everyone there knows that Jesus is healed because even those Pharisees knew that because they were there to see if he was going to heal. It may be the very reason that man with the withered hand showed up that day. I don't know. But everyone knows that this man who just said, stretch out your hand, has the capability of healing. Yeah, but on the other hand, he's got got one hand that works perfectly fine. And he, he could stretch out that hand in front of the crowd and save the embarrassment of everybody seeing that withered, crippled hand. But, but if that's his choice, he goes home the same way he came. Stretch out your hand, sir. Well, what do I do? Do I, do I take my weakness and put it in full display of everybody, or do I hide it and offer what looks good? And you understand, stretch out your hand is actually a gospel call. Either we take our good works and we put them on display for Jesus and everyone else to see what we've accomplished, or we dismiss the good that we have And we stretch out our weaknesses and our failures and everyone sees them and our brokenness to Jesus. What did this man do? Well, we know this man stretched out his withered hand and it, praise the Lord, it was restored. You know, it's the time when we decide to be honest with ourselves, with others, but specifically honest with God, and we come to grips with our imperfections, that is when healing begins. When we offer our brokenness to Jesus as an offering, like this is all, the, this is all that I have. I have a good hand. But this is where I need help. When we extend it as an offering to Jesus, he he accepts that offering and he offers healing in return. I'll just tell you this, and I know many of you have experienced salvation, but you will never experience salvation until you extend your brokenness to the Savior. If you continue to offer this display of how good you are, salvation is not yours. If it's, well, all the good things I've done, that's not the way we come to Jesus. Keep convincing yourself that salvation is up to your good works. You know who? You're only fooling yourself. But the healing Jesus offers, and this is such good news for everybody, doesn't stop at salvation. Refusing to hide your weaknesses and extending them to Jesus allows him to keep working in you, molding us more and more like him, which means you will find the healing of God when you stop hiding from God. 
mean, let's be honest. Christians are really, really good. If we have a withered hand, Christians are really, really good at extending this, hiding this, and then saying, oh, look at that weak hand. Look at that weak hand. Look at that withered hand. Look at that, look at that. Oh, look at me. <laughs> We're really, really good at that. When that's not at all. Jesus had two really good hands, right? He had two perfect hands. He's our creator, and yet we read this about him in Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, his wounds, we are healed. Huh. That doesn't sound, that passage doesn't sound like Jesus is afraid of our imperfections. It sounds as if Jesus is willing to take our imperfections upon himself, offering his perfection in return. But what are we extending to him? Jesus was shamed, exposed, and wounded on the cross so we could be healed. Okay, so I'm done. In our minds, can we just, just in our minds, walk into that synagogue today? And we look around, and the Pharisees are there, and Jesus is there. But there's no man with a withered hand. It's you. And he calls you into the middle of the room and says, Brian, or fill in the blank with your name. Stretch out your hand. And I have this choice to make, and you have this choice to make. Do I, do I show the creator my good hand? I mean, he created it. I don't think he's going to be impressed with something he created. Do I show him my weakness? Lord, I'm really embarrassed about this. I know you, I don't really want to show you, but. But you'll never be rejected. You'll never be ridiculed by Jesus. He wants us to bring our weaknesses to him. So we're left with the same choice that that man was left with. Do I extend my strengths so that I look good? Or do I extend my weaknesses so that Jesus can do a work in me that he won't do when this is all I show? So in just, a, in just a moment, not quite yet, but in just a moment, I'm, I am going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes in front of me. In just a moment, don't, don't do it yet. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to make a fist with both of your hands. Now in the scripture, this right hand, the right hand is the hand that was withered. So for us, the left hand is going to be the hand of strengths. And, I, and I, I want you in just a moment when we take the time to pray, I want you to think of the strengths that you could show. Like the, the, the talents, the gifts that you have that you could show. And then I want you to think of that right hand and think of the, the weaknesses that you have, the, the, maybe the failures, the past mistakes in your life that, that, that are very real. And then I'm going to ask you, if Jesus were to say, stretch out your hand, which one would you choose? And I'm, I really am going to ask you if you will symbolically lower one and raise the other to Jesus symbolically to say, this is, this is what I want to show you. I, I want, either want to show you my strengths or I want to show you my weaknesses. And if you extend those strengths, you tell them what those strengths are, I promise you, you're probably going to go home the same way if all you're going to do is tell Jesus how good you are.
But if you're willing to say, these are my weaknesses, and you just have a conversation with them and say, this is all that I have, but I know all that you are. Will you help me? And he certainly will. Humility is the pathway to healing. Pride is the pathway to hardening. And let me encourage you, be humble when Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Would you pray with me? I know it may sound silly. I, know, I understand. I totally understand that. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be joking. I, I know it sounds, sounds silly, but would you just, would you take in your two hands and would you ball them in fists in front of you? Would you take just a moment and, 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 and think about the good things in life that you have accomplished and make that left hand. Just, just think of some of the good things that if someone were to ask you, what, what are you proud of? Just think of some things in your life that not, not to be arrogant, not to be prideful, but what are some things you are proud of? Some of you would say, I'm a hard worker. I try to help people. I care for others. I serve at the church. Now turn your attention to that right fist. And let's just be honest about some of our failures and our weaknesses in ways we don't measure up. So you have a, a left hand of strengths and a right hand of weaknesses. And if Jesus were to call you to the middle today and say, stretch out your hand, would you just symbolically, would you raise one and lower the other? And would you just take some time to pray to the Lord about what you're extending to him.